One of my earliest memories as a kid is walking behind my dad. He was a whopping six foot four, so he was literally, as well as figuratively to me, larger than life. And uh, I remember being a very small child walking through the Atlanta airport trying to catch an early morning flight. You know, one of six kids, that's a long line of people, and Atlanta is always crowded. Um, but walking through the airport, I could see there was my dad, you know, his head two, a good two feet above everybody else in the crowd easy to keep track of. I remember following him on the beach late at night on our annual um, crab hunting expedition. On our beach trip, this was my favorite night because it meant I got to stay up late. And I had my little pink bucket, of course, for catching crabs, and my little pink flashlight that I loved so much. And I remember shining my flashlight on the beach to look for crabs, but then every so often shining it onto my dad's feet to make sure that I wasn't getting too far behind him. But what I remember most about following my dad was as an older kid, uh, walking behind him and my brother on many, many walks through the woods. We lived way out in the country for a season of my childhood. And, you know, we entertained ourselves by going exploring a lot. And on these trips in particular, I remember lamenting how much longer their legs were than mine and how much I had to hustle to keep up with them. And at times I would even try, you know, to lengthen my own stride to see if I could fit theirs. I guess you could say that I was a daddy's girl, but because I was also a little sister, I often felt left out. I wanted to be older and bigger, so that I could do more of those fun outings with dad, more outings that he often did with my older brother. And in my childish logic, I also somehow thought that I didn't just need to be bigger, I needed to be more like my brother in general. That in order to attain equal status and therefore full inclusion in the fellowship of my father, I needed to assimilate to the boyishness of my brother. You probably see where this is going. So I remember studying what boys were supposed to like and what girls were supposed to like, and then categorically re uh, favoring the boy things. So I liked bikes, not Barbies. I liked blue, not pink. I even threatened my best friend at the time and said that if she wanted to keep being my best friend, she also had to change her favorite color from pink to blue. I think she's forgiven me now. But the point, of course, is not that any of this uh, was based in reality, right? The point is that I was seeking an orderly system through which I could become, in my estimation, equal with my older brother. It was a very unsophisticated system, but it has remained for me a helpful image of what I think is an attempt to answer a very basic human question. Do I really belong? Am I enough? How do I find my place in this family? I think we see a version of this question at work in the Galatian church. It's a brand new family, this diverse group of Jews and Gentiles who are just beginning to follow Jesus together. And they're bringing very different backgrounds and cultural practices and ethnic identities to the same table. And the Jews have the upper hand, of course, because they've been God's people for centuries and they have the law which for them was the very orderly system by which they knew how to relate to God and how to live as members of his family. 
But now, suddenly, there are people in the family who look and eat and act nothing like them. These Gentiles who have been baptized into God's name and even received the Holy Spirit. And so it's all very confusing. And so the issue for the Galatian church quickly becomes one of assimilation. Do the Gentile converts need to become culturally Jewish in order to enjoy full fellowship in God's family? Do they need to become, in other words, just like their older brother? And some people were saying emphatically, yes, they do. They said it isn't enough to believe in the Messiah and be baptized. They insisted that to be truly equal members of the family, Gentile converts also needed to be circumcised. They needed to adopt a Jewish cultural identity. And Paul writes his letter to say, actually, no, that's not true. The entire book of Galatians is an argument against these agitators who were implying that the Gentiles were second-class citizens in the church. Paul argues that in Christ, God is giving birth to a new family that's no longer held together by ethnic or cultural practice, but by faith in the Messiah. So he says in verse 26 of today's reading, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot there, but the first thing we need to understand about what Paul is saying is this. There are no second-class citizens in God's family. If you have faith in Christ, you're in. You don't have to become just like someone else in order to belong. You're not the same as the person to your left or to your right, but you are God's own. And not only are you God's own, Paul says, but you are his son. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons. This is very intentional language. Paul could have used the generic word for children here, since he's obviously addressing a mixed audience. But he didn't. He used the gender-specific word for sons because of its legal connotation. In the ancient world, only a son could be an heir. Not a daughter and certainly not a slave. The son was the privileged child, right? The one who would ultimately inherit his father's estate. And now, that's all of us. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Notice, those are the big three right there, right? Race, class, and gender. Those are the three categories by which people were ranked in the ancient world. And now, all of us, all of God's children, are his heirs. And this is demonstrated by two things the sign of baptism, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a minute. Under the Old Covenant, circumcision was the sign, right? And that was reserved for Jewish men and their proselytes. In the New Covenant, the sign is baptism, and it is given to everyone who calls Jesus Lord, male and female. Under the Old Covenant, the Spirit was given to a select few, those chosen to lead or fulfill a special purpose on behalf of God's people. But in the New Covenant, we see very quickly that God's Spirit is poured out on all flesh, right? That's what happens at Pentecost. And of course, this is where God's plan was always headed. The promise given to Abraham, which you might remember was a promise to bless all nations, 
This promise predates the law given to Moses with its circumcision. So the law isn't bad, of course, but it was only ever meant to be temporary, only ever meant to guard God's people until the promise was fulfilled. And that's why Paul calls the law a guardian in verse 24. This term in Greek is paedagogos, which um, sounds a little bit like our modern word pedagogue. It's not quite the same, but a paedagogos was usually a trusted household slave who was charged with keeping the master's children safe and out of trouble until they came of age. So the paedagogos would walk a young man to school and maybe help him with his homework and was really just a guardian for the child until he was able to function as an adult in society. So Paul is saying the law served its purpose, but in Christ, we don't need it anymore. The law showed us God's holiness, his otherness, but now God has come near in the person of Jesus. The law revealed our sinfulness by showing us how stinking hard it is to keep. But now the Spirit has come to write the law on our hearts, to change us from the inside out. In Christ, in other words, we have graduated from the babysitter, and now we are ready to live as sons and heirs of God our Father. So now that we can share in that promise, why would we go back to the law? That's the question that is arising here. Why would we insist that everyone be circumcised and live under Jewish regulations as if God hadn't poured out his spirit on the Gentiles apart from the law? To put it another way, why was anyone tempted by these agitators? It's a good question. New Testament theologian Esau Macaulay lists two reasons, and I'll add a third. First, the law provided a powerful sense of cultural identity. Law-keeping Jews, they knew who they were, and they knew how to order their lives together, even while they were living as exiles under Roman occupation. It gave them a powerful sense of their identity as a people. And the Gentiles also, before coming to faith in Jesus, they had a sense of cultural identity, but it was tied up in paganism, the cultural deities and rites of the Roman Empire. So now in the early church, you've got Jews who are being asked to share table fellowship with uncircumcised Gentiles, and you've got Gentiles who've left their former lives and are now alienated from everything they knew under paganism. In other words, everybody feels a little bit out of place in this new covenant community. And so just going back to the law would have provided a nice orderly system by which these Christians could order their lives together and make sense of who they were in relation to the broader culture. And in this sense, Macaulay says, this is very close to how Christians might find themselves in our divided cultural moment. He says, we look to the left and the right, and it feels like there are these two camps with their respective ideologies, issues, even media sources. Sound familiar? These two camps that, for better or worse, try to give us a sense of who we are, a tribe. And as Christians whose new and primary allegiance is to Christ, we often find ourselves not fully fitting into one party or the other. And there's tremendous pressure to choose one or the other to resolve that cultural tension. And of course, what we see when we fall prey to this temptation is that we often create a new class system in the church, right? Whichever camp we land in, right or left, we like to point at the other camp and call them 
the second-class citizens. We cast ourselves in the role of the older brother and assume that we are God's favorites, that we are the ones who are getting it right, and that God's family will finally be on track when they assimilate to us. The second reason that law adherence tempted the Galatian church had to do with their quest for holiness. Here's Esau Macaulay again. He says, After the initial fire of conversion faded, the Galatian Christians found that sin was still a problem to be dealt with. Relatable. Enter the agitators and the temptation to Judaize. They say, we have a solution for you. The law will guide you. You want to be holy? Follow the law. There is something about law that's more comfortable, more controllable. It helps us to feel as if we're doing it right. And in this light, I think we can see the appeal of any kind of law, any system that promises to deal with our sin and teach us how to live as God's people. I think under the best of circumstances, legalism is born of a sincere desire to be holy. But if you've lived under legalism, you understand what Paul means when he calls it a form of enslavement. He says in verse 23, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Why? Because at its best, the law restrains us, but it can't change us. So God has given us something better than the law. In the age of his son, he has given us his spirit. So later in the letter, Paul says, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Holiness matters, but the law doesn't cut it. Now, the third reason I think the Galatians might have been tempted to Judaize, to assimilate to a Jewish cultural identity is this. Sometimes the gospel just sounds too good to be true. Sometimes we struggle to believe that faith alone makes us sons and heirs. Sometimes we feel more comfortable with the guardian than we do with the father because it's hard to understand how God could truly love us just as we are. On a deep and Again, almost subconscious level, I think many of us in the church are still asking God, do I really belong? Am I enough? How do I find my place in this family? Earlier, I mentioned being a daddy's girl and trying to construct a system through which I could believe that I was equal in his eyes to my older brother. Now, that project was futile on its own merits, but it was also never finished because my dad got sick with cancer when I was 11. He died when I was 14, and so in some ways, I never settled into the peace and confidence in his love that I know he would have wanted me to have as his daughter. So, of course, what happened then is that I imported all of that insecurity onto my relationship with my Heavenly Father. And I decided, not consciously, of course, but I decided it was just going to be safer to relate to God as a boss than to think of him as a father. And go figure, I ended up as a priest. God is actually my boss now. But in all seriousness, in my early 20s, I began to realize that I love God, and I believe he loves me, but I'm just more comfortable in the realm of doing things for him. So, you know, I'd approach him if I had a professional question, like, how should I live? Or what should I do with my life, Lord? What should I believe about this or that thing? 
And then I thought that maybe if I could do enough, if I could just be useful enough, then maybe one day I'd feel worthy to just be in the room with him. I knew how to be God's servant, but I didn't know how to be his daughter. And I remember this realization hitting me about halfway through seminary. And I was pretty distressed about it, you know, like this is a big block in my relationship with God. And then on top of that, I felt shame for not getting it. You know, like I'm in seminary and I don't even know how to believe this most basic stuff about our faith. It was a good heaping of distress with shame on top. Maybe you can relate to that. And a friend of mine said something very wise to me. She said, Hannah, you should not feel shame for struggling with this. God knows that you need help, and that is why he has given you the spirit of adoption. It, it's not just up to you to muster up the belief on your own. You have been given a helper. She was, of course, quoting Paul. His very next words to the Galatians in chapter 4. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Your story isn't my story, but our story is the Galatians' story. It's the gospel story. And this good news is too good for us to understand on our own that God would make for himself a family from every tribe and tongue and nation and make us all co-heirs with his very own son. That he would ask us to live together as brothers without comparing ourselves to each other or pitting one group above any other. That we could learn to walk in holiness before him and the world without falling back into the slavery of the law. It's absolutely supernatural what he's asking us to do. And that is why he gives us his spirit. The law corresponds to slavery, but the spirit corresponds to sonship. The spirit is the down payment of our inheritance, and he gives us power to start living into that inheritance right now, together. So how do we do that? I'll leave you with two things. First, remember your baptism. Baptism is the visible tangible sign of your acceptance into this family. At baptism, you were presented to the church and publicly given God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to see one of these baptisms at the 11 o'clock service today. Now, some of us were baptized as babies, and you know, that has its own beauty to it, right? Because it reminds us that when we were helpless, God made us his children. So, but you may not remember your baptism consciously, And neither did the great reformer Martin Luther. And here's what he used to do. When he was feeling especially condemned by the devil, especially unworthy of God's love, or especially overcome by sin, he would look at himself in the mirror and he would say, I am a baptized man. That's what it means to remember your baptism. You can do this also every Sunday when you come to church because that baptismal font lives in the foyer right here right inside the front doors. And when you come in, you can dip your fingers into the water and mark yourself once again with the cross of Christ to remember your baptism, 
to remember, as Paul says in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are heirs. Some commentators even think that these words of Paul were part of the church's earliest baptismal formula, that these were liturgical words. So just imagine being in a first century church and hearing these words, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, you are now God's son and heir. Today's Father's Day, obviously. So on this Father's Day, whether or not you are a father, you can remember that you have a father. Remember your baptism. And second, in light of that, remember your brothers. If this is about God's family, right, then it's not just a personal, spiritual reality. This is about a community of real people whose lives in the body matter profoundly to God. You can't call someone brother or sister for long without caring about what happens to them. You can't see someone as your equal in Christ, but as your property in the world. White Christians in America haven't always understood this very well. But our brothers and sisters in the black church have been our teachers. You might know that in addition to Father's Day, today is also Juneteenth, which is a celebration of the end of slavery in America. On June 19, 1865, Union troops marched into Galveston, Texas to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation, which had gone into effect two and a half years earlier. So they say, they think, that some of Galveston's 10,000-plus residents probably just hadn't heard the news yet. You know, this is the age before the Internet and email and Twitter, so maybe they just hadn't gotten word that slavery had ended. They think some others in Galveston might have known and they were suppressing the news. Either way, two and a half years later, the last slaves in the southern states were finally allowed to walk free on this day just over 150 years ago. A man named Rasul Berry just came out with a free documentary about Juneteenth, which you can find on YouTube. And he says what most surprised and impacted him about the story of these freed slaves is how unanimously they credited God with their freedom. A significant number of them immigrated to Houston, Texas from Galveston, where the first institution they built six months after winning their freedom was a church, Antioch Baptist Missionary Church. It's still standing today, and if you go into the sanctuary there and you look up, you'll find etched into the ceiling a huge cross that the pastor there says was meant to remind the congregation of Jesus' outstretched arms embracing them, reminding them of his death and resurrection as the very reason for their existence and the reason for their freedom. The black church understood through great tribulation and suffering the cost of Christ's love for them. They understood, perhaps better than we do, how revolutionary it is that God calls us sons and heirs. There are no second-class citizens in God's family. We're slow learners, but God has given us his spirit to help us. So let me pray for us now. Father, thank you for the incredible privilege 
of becoming your sons, your children, through faith and for making us heirs, co-heirs with Christ, bringing us into your family. And I do pray that you would send your spirit now to help us to understand and to believe and to live into this reality, both for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters around the world. Come Holy Spirit, help us we pray. Amen.